Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. High rates, high anxiety. As stocks remain unsettled today. The investment committee with me here at Post 9 to help us navigate this choppy market. Joining me for the hour, Bryn Talkington, Joe Terranova, Jason Snipe, Jenny Harrington. Check the markets. Uh, we're having a, I don't know, we're picking up a little bit as we come on the air here. There's a Dow up one quarter of one percent. So we're in the green across the board. S&P good. We just saw that. Let's show that again if we could. NASDAQ as well. Highs of the day there. So NASDAQ's up one, uh, 135 points. That's about one uh, percent. So Brent, nice to have you back at the desk. Uh, ADP was weak. Yields took a cue off of that and came down a bit. The 10-year at 473. Um, how do you see things right here? Jolt strong, ADP weak. Uh, the 10-year was at 488. Now we've got a reprieve a little at 470. So right now, it's rates, rates, rates. And so if rates come down, you're going to see names like Tesla go up. You're going to see some utilities go up. You're going to see you know, the stocks that have been most beaten down move higher. But I think, though, that we have to settle in that, although we're not going to get this parabolic move that we've seen continue to go higher, that now, though, the 10-year ceiling before was four and a quarter. That is now the floor. And so now we've, I think we're going to bump along between 425, we'll say 480. I think that will be challenging longer term for the market. But right now, it looks like we have a good old bounce, like pretty much off that 200-day moving average with the S&P. Lots of folks, Joe, watching the yield curve, uh, including Jeffrey Gunlock. Uh, De-inverting very rapidly, he tweeted. Uh, Should put everyone on recession watch, not just uh, a recession warning, not just recession watch. If the unemployment rate ticks up just a couple of tenths, it will be a recession alert. Buckle up. You want to opine on that as we are sort of transfixed by what's happening in the bond market? Jeffrey is focused on the exact place within the market where all the viewers should be focused on. In the last two weeks, the spread between a two and a 10 year has moved from negative 80 basis points to negative 30 basis points. It is very clear to me that we are at the early stages of a governmental balance sheet recession. We actually might actually be in that recession right now. The consumer is weakening. They are cost conscious. This morning, the oil inventory statistics, gasoline, Scott, the four-week moving average for gasoline demand is at a 25-year low. The impact of rising rates is affecting the real economy right now. Did you hear what City said today? Their data about credit card spending, rapid deceleration, the fifth consecutive month of decel in, in credit card spend. To your point. And it's affecting areas of the market and industries within the market that we thought were unable to be penetrated. Think about the support that the renewable energy trade got from the Inflation Reduction Act. What's happening right now in the renewable energy trade? It is literally imploding. If you look at the ETF, the clean energy ETF, the ICLN, it's down 30%. 
the solar ETFs down 34%. The pain for Nextera Energy and Nextera Energy Partners, it's not stopping. Renewable energy needs to borrow today to fund the projects. The economic weakness, it's here. It's here right now. And by the way, that doesn't mean that stocks go down. And I think that's exactly what the strength in the mega caps is telling you. You know what I almost feel like? You know, there, Clarida was giving an interview, the former vice chair, uh, Jason Snipe, a little while ago and said the Fed might be done hiking rates. Now, you get a lot of Fed speakers, but when it's a former vice chair, uh, now at PIMCO, obviously, Rich Clarida, maybe it carries a little more weight about how people look at it in the market, try to read through the comments to get to, you know, inside the room itself, uh, where it's all going to happen moving forward. Um, Is that in part what we're seeing? So if the Fed, in fact, is done, a little bit of a a weakening economy off off the hot burner, Uh, is good for stocks at this moment. Without a doubt, Scott, I think, you know, Bryn made a a point earlier about ADP and and the jolts data that we've seen over the last couple days. Obviously, the jolts was a surprise to the upside, more jobs available. That's a concern for the Fed in terms of wage inflation, right? So then we saw some lighter ADP numbers, rates start to pull back a little bit. Now we see the NASDAQ moving a bit. But, you know, as I I look to the fourth quarter, you know, here we are, obviously, today. Um, You know, I think about seasonality, right? And I think about when I think about volatility and all that we've experienced over the last couple of weeks, I do think uh, I look over the last 40 years, S&P is up 4.6 percent you know, during the fourth quarter. I think that that's the main point to, to make sure that we pay attention to. Also, you know, um, 81% of the time that the S&P is up. So, um, yes, we have earnings in the next couple of weeks. I think that's also going to play into it, and I think they'll be relatively strong. So I think that, although Joe is making some valid points on just the consumer and the weakness there, I think there are some other valid points as it comes to earnings. We just got to get the, the hot sizzle off of rates for a moment, right? We can't watch, Jenny, the yield on the 10-year go up every day. Right. Yeah. Right. You, know, you, you get up to 480 yesterday and you're like, uh, we were asking the question late in the day, are we going to get over 5% by the end of the month? I'm like, maybe we get to 5% by the end of the week at the rate we're going. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that's why stocks were unsettled. So we come off the burner a little bit and it's no surprise that we've, you know, got a, a little bit of relaxation for the moment. Right. So it's funny. I was just thinking about this this morning, which is in my old, old office. So probably about eight years ago, I made a very obnoxious and bold statement, which was in my career, I don't think I'll see a five-year treasury again. And and I remember my colleagues kind of accosting me and saying like, hey, that's pretty aggressive. You really think that's real? And I was like, yeah, there's no setup for the rest of my career in the next 30 or 40 years where I'll see a, what, a, a 5% 10-year treasury. So I'm on the train this morning and thinking like, boy, I could really, really have been wrong about that. But I think it's interesting, too, because when I was thinking about how do we get from 4.8% on the 10-year last night where we ended to 5%, like, I actually don't see the path to get there. I think... The, the most likely, we know the Fed's done, right? Or even if they do another 25, they're essentially done. So the real way that we get there is if people don't want to buy long-term, you, okay, you think you think they're not done? Fine, but odds are they're mostly done. So, um, so the way we get to a five-year tenure is if the government continues this ridiculous fiscal irresponsibility and other nations and endowments and pensions and sovereignty say, hey, guess what? We don't trust you. We don't want to buy your debt. Or if we do, you need to pay us a lot more. And so that's a really different equation than I've ever really thought of in terms of what gets us to a 10-year. We're there. Yeah, but I feel like, Joe, there are too many people. I've said this you know, over the last few days. I feel like too many people have gotten on that, that side of the boat talking about this issuance and who are the buyers, sort of overstating the fact that there aren't, potentially overstating the fact, 
that the buyers just aren't going to be there, and that's going to continue to force rates to, to rocket higher. So, you know, you always think of everything as a trade. You think in terms of speculation. Uh, right now, there is aggressive selling. Hedge funds, we know, are sellers of treasuries. Who's on the other side? Who's the marginal buyer of treasuries to push against? I don't know. I mean, you heard Sarah Eisen was talking about yeah. a firm. I can't, the, the name of the firm escapes me, but from what you know, she had, had read or who they had, they had talked to about people looking at it as a buying opportunity now. Maybe, yeah. maybe, for that, asset, maybe, maybe bonds have, have gone down too much, too fast. For, for the asset management industry, for pension funds, if you have a view three right. to five years out, without question, 100%. In fact, the, the, the corporate bond market is probably has more value than the equity market it has itself. We'll talk a little bit further about that in one specific sector. But for where we are right now in this moment, no, it's very clear that there's no catalyst for buyers to appear in the interim other than thinking about the long term. I think that we are all living still in the past 13 years, and everyone's expecting the Fed to start cutting rates, and all of a sudden the 10-year goes from 470 down to 3%, and we should lock in these 10-year yields. I think that you need to settle in that the bull market in bonds that we're in for 30 years is over. We are now structurally, I think, going to have higher inflation, structurally higher rates. And so I think that that changes long-term asset allocation. I don't find the 10-year at 4.7% as an investment even remotely interesting. It's like there's so many other things you can buy besides a 4.7%. And I do think when I was nodding at Jenny, I think you have not just who's the marginal buyer, but also who is the seller. And I think that's just fact-based. Like China is selling. You have the QT. And we're in these uncharted waters. We have never had this much debt. We've never had QT at this level trying to unwind. Mm -hmm. And so I think this confluence of once-in-a-lifetime events. Mm -hmm. And so everyone's just so certain of what's going to happen. I just think that's a fallacy. So I still think, as an asset allocator, I don't want to touch the 10-year. I would rather sit out in a two-year or less, collect that, and then add risk, whether it's in private markets or equities or what have you. But I feel like there's no good compensation as a private client or even a pension fund to lock in 4.7%. But, what, but Jenny, what if I told you that, okay, the economy's slowing. Um, in, sen- in some senses, that's good. That's what the Fed needs and wants, right? The consumer's slowing. That's what the Fed needs and wants. Inflation is coming down. The Fed may very well be done. That's not a, and earnings are gonna hold up, by the way. And expectations are that they're gonna start to ramp up. That's not a good environment for stocks amid all of the negativity, skies falling. No, I think it is. I just think there's a cap on that good environment. So one thing on the bond side first, we're all talking about like who's buying bonds and then I'll get back to the stocks, but we're all talking about who wants to buy bonds, right? And and you were saying long-term pension funds, if they have that outlook and Bryn's saying, I don't want to buy them. But the thing is, a lot of pension fund money is on what's called a glide path. So with the with interest rates being up so much, suddenly these pension funds are mostly funded, at which point they're not making an active decision. They're following their mathematical plan to actually reduce their equity exposure and jack up their fixed income exposure to essentially annuitize the pension plans. So there is a significant amount of money out there that's just triggered at these rates to go into fixed income. I totally agree with Bryn when she she says, I still don't find that attractive. I still don't find a 4.7% tenure attractive either for all the rates you stated. And, and I think when I look out, even if it's 4.7%, 
and Bryn's right that it's going to be a higher kind of static inflation, let's say inflation's 4% or 3.5%, your real return on a 10-year Treasury bond at 4.7 or 5%, your real return is meaningless. It's just not that exciting. And if we're in an inflationary environment, like you need your money to be working for you. So I'd much rather own equities, growth equities, dividend equities. I'd much okay. rather own those where earnings are actually growing and there's capital so, appreciation in the share price. So I'm looking at the NASDAQ's up 1% and, and half of me, I mean, I guess this is half joking because I'm wondering if this is true. <laughs> That maybe the analyst at KeyBank who downgraded Apple just called a near-term bottom in the, uh, in the NASDAQ and <laughs> Apple uh, itself, adjacent snipe, because the NASDAQ's up, as I said, 1%. You get so negative, right, that now the analyst comes out and he downgrades Apple now. Um, Apple, by the way, is up. Up on the downgrade, okay? Um, what do you make of this? Yeah, so I, I mean, as it relates to Apple, I think what I think about is, first of all, revenue has been declining in the last three quarters, and it's anticipated to decline next quarter as well. Um, you know, the, the story with Apple is always the, the valuation. I mean, that, that's really when the theme this year is trading at 28 times forward with only an 8% long-term growth rate. So when you, when you put those two pieces together, it's hard for me as an investor, even knowing that it's the largest company in the, in the S&P, it's the largest company in the world, you know, what is the, who is the incremental buyer there, right? You know, as it relates to the valuation and, and also as it relates to growth prospects. So for me, this downgrade is, is coming maybe a couple quarters too late. What do you want yeah. to do with this downgrade today? I, I largely agree with what he wrote. Um, in regards to my portfolio in September, I own Apple. I sold, when it was at 180, I sold the February 195 calls. So I don't think that stock's going to get called away from me anytime soon. I don't want it to get called away, but I wanted to collect some dividends, some, some call premium. I think that Apple's had a wonderful return this year, but my knock on future multiple expansion is that outside of COVID, which everyone bought an iPhone, everyone bought a computer, et cetera, et cetera, their growth from a top line revenue growth pre-COVID was anemic. And I feel like we're going back to that. Yeah, but see, I don't, I, I take, I, I'm not necessarily sure that's the case. I don't think during COVID, everybody, in your words, bought a, bought a new iPhone. I think that's the whole thesis behind this new phone that's finally well, come out where you actually may have a robust upgrade cycle. Now, the analyst here cites concerns that you won't, that it will, that it will be more muted, but we heard early reports, you know, when the phone dropped, that early sales were good. They may have bought computers, but I'm not so sure that everybody upgraded on their iPhone is when they were sitting at home. Correct. The narrative is like the, there's a big cycle of 11 and 12 users that will upgrade to the 15, right? And I think that's probably true. Yours truly. But if you just, if you just look, though, at their revenue growth during COVID, it was accelerated. And so now it's trending back down to what it was before that. And so I think you have to ask, their earnings go higher? Because remember, earnings per share? Per share is an important word, and they keep reducing the share count, and that's why their earnings keep going higher. But really, as a long-term investor in Apple, I want to see that good revenue growth, not only from services, which I think will be strong, but also from the phones as well. So I just think right now, I'm happy to sell those 195 calls. I don't think it's going to get called away. It needs to digest a little bit. Joe? 
I've said this, Apple is trading off of technicals. It is as nearly perfect, Brent, Lena, I mean, look at that chart, it's perfect. In January, Apple breaks above the 50-day moving average, never goes back below it until after earnings in July, breaks below the 50-day moving average, and guess what it does last Tuesday? Challenges the 200-day moving average, doesn't break below it, and now it's snapping back. The answers in terms of what the services revenue is going to be, what the fundamentals of Apple will, will be, we'll know that in a few weeks, but understand until that moment, this stock is trading purely off technicals. So, I mean, look, the, the downgrade, Jason, is about fundamentals. You know, this muted upgrade cycle, uh, near peak multiples, estimates being full. How do you uh, assess this call? But also more broadly, the, um, the NASDAQ itself, which has gotten you know, beaten up as rates have gone up, yep. but we're getting a nice little bounce today. So I, I, I largely agree with the call. You know, as, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think, you know, as it relates to the valuation, I think Joe makes a good point on the technicals as well. I think, I think that Apple is trading in concert with that. Um, you know, but it's also a mature company. It's a mature company. Again, when we look at the long-term growth rate, as I stated, you know, 9%. You know, that with it trading at 28 times forward, I mean, this is a difficult cocktail to take in. So for me, but as it relates broadly, more broadly to, to the NASDAQ and other sectors, all sectors are now trading below their 50 days. Every single sector. And XLE Energy was the last one uh, to, to be in that place. So I think about it, you know, as we move into the fourth quarter and earnings coming on deck next week, late next week, and we got some inflationary data coming in as well. I think earnings, to your point, will hold in. And I think the tech tech sectors and other sectors can move here. Is it time, Joe, to, to, to buy the dip in mega cap tech? I already did, Scott. Yeah. You, bought, well, you bought the cues. Well, early. You bought the cues. I, I did. And, uh, you know, the obvious reasoning behind that is carrying an equal weighted strategy so far in 2023 and underperforming in that sense. Let, let's also remember at the time in which I bought the QQQ, I was also funding the trade by selling uh, the biotech ETF and selling Bank of America. So overall, that's actually worked out well. But I just believe as you look into the fourth quarter, yes, it is the mega caps where you're going to see uh, the combination of the absence of a need to utilize the debt markets, first mm -hmm. and foremost, the profitability being present. And then last of all, if we do get a bounce in the fourth quarter and you are a money manager, where are you going to turn to kind of capture what you're witnessing in the real equity so market. So you're still playing for that? I think you're still playing for that. I, I, I'm managing the risk a court. So yes, I am, because I'm managing the risk around the potential that there is this fourth quarter chase for performance. And I think the focal point is squarely upon the mega caps. They are going to be the ones that are going to deliver that type of return, not other areas of the market. No, well, I mean, I think Bill Baruch, you know, one of our uh, committee members, thinks the same. He joins us now because uh, he's buying more Alphabet. It goes to the conversation we're having now about whether, you know, this near term pullback in some of these names is, in fact, a buying opportunity to which you think it is. So, thanks for having me on, Judge. But you said that this is the panic downgrade. This is the panic selling. And I agree with that. I think that this is the last bit of that proverbial shoe to be dropping right now. Over the past month, I've been talking about a level in the S&P, and I watched the futures, 4,200 to 4,235, and it pinged that last night overnight, and we've been able to move off of that, sort of rejecting this. 
So I take a step back. I, I do think that tech is going to outperform. I do think that rates are at the peaking level here, at least in the two year. So I want to own the big tech. And I think tech's going to lead through the quarter four. Like Joe said, if you're a money manager looking to outperform, where are you going to look? So I want to own the best assets within tech. And I'm watching Alphabet right now. I think Alphabet has really outperformed through this drawdown in the market. Uh, it's not even down 1% over the last month. And if you look at it outperforming, it's at a 52-week high outperforming against the Qs, making a new high here today. Meaning, if the Qs are up 1% on pace, the Alphabet should maybe outperforming by 1.5% or 1.25%. Just going to put that relatively the relative outperformance on Alphabet is here, and it's it's noticeable. I want to own that. We basically doubled our position. We, we had trimmed it back in July. We basically doubled our position. It is now our highest weighted stock at roughly about 7% within the portfolio. Wow, Apple number two, Amazon number three. So, you know, you you need rates to, to stop going up for the NASDAQ to stabilize for any meaningful period of time, correct? Yes, I, and I think there's always going to be hurdles. I mean, not for our payroll coming around the corner on Friday. Maybe it's one last stretch for everybody getting a job here coming out of the summer. But ADP was a, a little bit of a, of a fallout today. So is there any any sort of light at the end of the tunnel in the job market? Obviously, CPI around the corner as well, but, but energy is coming down. I think some components we've been seeing, especially within PCE uh, at the end of uh, the last month, you're seeing inflation come down. So I think we could be at a little bit of a peak here in rates, a bottom in treasury prices, meaning um, I, that's what I'm looking for here. And that's going to bring a really good tailwind. I'm turning that into saying I, I want to be buying more tech as a leadership uh, here in quarter four. Yeah, appreciate it very much, Bill. Thanks. We'll see you on the desk uh, one day soon, I'm sure. Jason Snipe, you got Google as well, uh, among some of the other tech stocks that yep. you own, the strategy and, yep. and the commentary. What do you think of it? No, I like it. I like it and I, and I like Google and I think you know, Joe makes a good point on just free cash flow. I think that's so important. I mean, Google has $70 billion of free cash flow. And again, companies that don't need to rely on the debt markets to grow, I think this, this presents a, a significant opportunity. And I think there's growth potential in, in across the board with many of these names because they're also, they also have a lot of growth potential. And then again, with all the cash flow that's sitting on the sidelines and they're growing interest on it. Jenny Meta reiterated today, overweight, JPM. Right. Price target goes to 400 from 425, but nonetheless, they're sticking with the name. Right. So, you know, we've been trimming that. So this was one where we were, I felt like, the only ones who liked it last year. It reminds us that, you know what it does? It reminds us that valuation matters. And last year when it was trading at a dirt cheap valuation with actually provable earnings growth ahead, it was a buy. And now we're not so psyched on it. So that 400 sounds aggressive to me. Getting back to, to that call on KeyBank, which I think echoes to this too, to me, that's not calling a bottom, Scott. To me, that's sending a warning signal across the bow saying, hey, pay attention. Some of these valuations are really rich, whether it's Meta, which we've been trimming. Google actually to us is looking, Alphabet is looking more attractive. But I think... I wasn't I, saying that he was calling the bottom. I was being facetious oh, and suggesting that the call... Sorry, sorry. I'm sorry. That's hypothetically right. marked I'm sorry, the bottom. The call, I because don't, when you get to I'm sorry, you're this exactly point right. where you downgrade an Apple and then, you know, the Nasdaq's up a percent and Apple bucks the downgrade and is up right. in its own right. At some point, buyers were going to look at the pullback in some of these mega cap names and say, 
Right. I, I, I like these names for all the reasons that everybody has just said. And That's see, why. I just don't read it that way. I actually read the key bank report as like, hey, pay attention, wake up. There's 3% revenue growth in Apple. There's It's at a 25 times multiple. Some of these are expensive. If you look at the yeah, top it wasn't 10. 30, it wasn't 31 or 32 times. Yeah. And I don't think it should be there. And I don't think it should be there again anytime soon. And if you look at the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500, they've got a 25.9 times multiple. The entire rest has a 16.7 times multiple. I think that it's gone too far again. So I actually read the key bank and say, no, I think they're right. And I don't think you want to play in that same sandbox. I read that report and I hear change tact. Yeah, but and so I'm mean, happy I, about our reduction in our meta I just end it, Joe, with what Kramer always says, and he did it again this morning, that just simply nobody's good enough to just trade in and out of Apple. It's a, it's when, if, you, if, you, if you don't like it now, okay, you don't like it at 173, let's just say you, you sell some. You know, maybe not you sell at all, but when you get back in, where's the queue? What's the signal and the price that looks great then? I, I, you know what I, I mean? So I don't, I don't like to use the word nobody because there are people that are. But, that you are know what my, you know my point. The, yes, no, no. There, is, there are people out there, Joe. You know what I'm saying. No, but the overwhelming majority of people, um, to your point, need to maintain the positioning. I think a lot of the problem is that sometimes we think about it as positioning as a light switch. So you either turn it on or you turn it off. I think the degree in which you own the position is very important. Now, again, I'm speaking from the perspective of owning Apple at an under uh, at an equal weight positioning, which really has been underweight because of the outperformance of mega cap so far year to date. So I think that's that's the more productive conversation. What's your exposure to Apple? Are you carrying it at market cap weight mm -hmm. or are you carrying it at equal weight? And if you have a concern about the valuation, then you should not be at market cap weight. You should be at equal weight. Or okay. you sell calls against it and get some income along, along the way. All right, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I am looking at a stock in the financial space that one of our committee members just sold. And that's ahead of earnings next week. We're back in two minutes. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Let's get to some moves. Uh, Joe, so the banks report next week, okay? Uh, Morgan Stanley, you sold it. Scott, that's Man, a... And you like this name for a long, long, long time. I've owned it for well over six years. So this is a stock that has done phenomenally well. Management has executed on all of the acquisitions, all of the intentions to grow organically. And the reason that I moved out of this name largely is from the perspective of managing the risk around a portfolio 
and also the macro conditions, which I do not believe are favorable for Goldman Sachs, for Morgan Stanley, for Bank of America. I think JP Morgan, which I'll still maintain in a position in, challenged, but I think there will be a degree of resiliency there. There's been this overwhelming growth of private credit, okay? Private credit is providing the liquidity right now into the marketplace that the Federal Reserve is not providing and the banking uh, community is not providing in the wake of the regional banking crisis. So I, I'm just asking, how in fact are these banks going to grow organically? And I think that's such a critical question. Are they going to have tremendous amount of capital on their balance sheet? Without question, they're going to be hoarding capital. They're sitting in the middle of a classic liquidity trap. But I don't see where the organic growth comes from. And quite candidly, I believe owning the debt of a name like Morgan Stanley, where you're probably going to get a 65 to 7% yield, is probably more favorable in this environment than owning the equity. So, Bryn, Bank of America today was looking at the implications of higher rates, and they suggest you know, if it leads to what they think is an expected, a worse than expected uh, credit cycle could cause a market shock and it's going to be bad for the banks. I what, think do we, what do we think about the financial stocks here? I don't know if now's the time to sell them or whether the time to sell these stocks was six months ago or at the beginning of the year. You tell me, you guys are the experts. We, I mean, we got out of our regional bank exposure in August of 2022. Right. And like we felt a late cycle, late cycle, you don't want to have an overweight position to the banks or own the banks. I personally own Goldman Sachs and that, that's it. I think the problem, I mean, look at Bank of America stock. It's like it's done trading like a regional bank, not Bank of America. Year to date I, down 22 percent. Yeah. And just the past week as rates have shot up, I think that what would cause an issue with the consumer is less of a concern to me. I think this run up in rates so quickly makes a higher probability that an accident will occur in the financial markets. I think that's one of the other reasons the bank stocks the past couple of days, especially Bank of America has been very weak because we all know they're held to maturity is very long duration. I think that the consumer, it's a slow squeeze because credit interest rates on credit cards are well in the 20s. Are they going to go to 30%? Right? That's, that's just a slow squeeze, though. I think that really it's more of a financial event occurring mm -hmm. because of this really fast move in rates. I've been looking at you know, one of the sectors or you know, the areas of the market that's been weak of late, biotech. Yeah. You sold the XBI. It hits a 52-week low today. Just got tired, tired of dealing with it or, yeah. or what? Well, I bought it last year. And XBI, for the viewers, is the small and mid-cap biotech versus IBB owes more the, the large and mega cap. It had been trading from October of 2022 to really a month and a half ago between 80 and 90. And so what I would do when it gets to 90, I would sell calls, goes back to 80 and I was playing that 80 to 90. It's really broken down. And so I want to constantly re-underwrite would I buy it today? And the answer was no, so I sold it. But what I did with the funds, where I do have high conviction, is I bought, which I've talked about before, POCT, which is an innovator. It's, it buys the S&P 500 with SPY. They do a very simple, it sounds complicated, put call spread, but I get 15% protection on the downside from Monday's close and I get 15% upside. So that gives me like 36.50 to the downside and 40, about 49.50 on the upside with a one-year observation in a liquid ETF. I'll take that all day long as a, versus a, over XBI. All right, good stuff. Um, thank you for that. All right, coming up, discretionary. Today's top performing sector and what a difference a day makes because yesterday got obliterated. We'll find out how the committee is positioned. We're talking cruises, we're talking casinos, we're talking home builders, home improvement stocks. We'll do it next.
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk discretionary. There's the sector. We said it's one of the best performing today, up one and two thirds percent. So, Joe, you know, yesterday we're talking um, later in the day, you got rates up, mortgage rates like over 7.7 percent. Obviously, the home builders out of discretionary are going to get obliterated when you talk about that, not to mention the home improvement names, which we'll get into in a minute. But Lennar and DR Horton, you have. What do, what do I do? What do I do with rates that high? Um, I said a few weeks back, I believe that the home builders had seen the fundamental strength peak in the spring selling season. And I'll I'll still maintain that position. Uh, That doesn't mean that there's going to be a significant deterioration for the home builders because they still benefit. But there has been, though. They still benefit. Well, they're they're coming off a significant high. Yeah, yeah, I know. But in one month, moderating. They're moderating gains. Moderating. Lenar's down 10.5% in a month. DR's down 14. Is that moderating? What's that? You're, you're talking specifically about price action. It's I'm melting. talking about fundamentals. <laughs> He's I mean, NVIDIA's down He's, 20%. Go ahead. So the, go ahead. The, the fund- <laughs> Tell me how the fundamentals are good. <laughs> so they still maintain the advantage of a very tight uh, residential inventory of homes in the United States. I think they'll benefit from that longer term. Um, have, they, have they seen... Have they seen their best moment? Yes, they have. But but I don't think you could place them in the category of a lot of other names in consumer discretionary, like some of the retail names, like some of the department stores. In fact, I think when you look at two of these names, you could expect that you'll see a modest price recovery at some point. Jason Snipe, um, yeah. Lowe's is down 14% in a month. Yeah. What do I do with that one? Same boat. Yeah, no, it's it's been a difficult run uh, for Lowe's and a lot of the home builders. Like you said, I mean, Lowe's is down 10% in the last three months, but it was a it was a it was a positive quarter. Uh, what I like about Lowe's and what I continue to like about Lowe's is they are still gaining market share in the pro segment from HD. And I think uh, Marvin Lowe from an operate, the operational margins are continuing to grow, but the, the whole market is tough. That market is tough, but I continue to own it just for, for leadership. And I think operational margins continue to grow. Jenny, Sherwin-Williams, how are you feeling about that one? Actually, I just told them we sold Sherwin a couple years ago. Um, so I don't know how it got on there. I think, oh. I think maybe it was a typo. Okay. We own Schwab. All right, all that's <laughs> um, old is new again. I know, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, what were you saying? No, just we own Schwab, and so I wonder if that was somehow got picked up as Sherwin Williams. What we do own. Well, we can dissect that whole thing later. It's not sure. a big deal now. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, what about other areas of discretionary? I think that you really have to pick your spots. I mean, when I look at like a Lennar, it had such an amazing run. At, you know, it, but now it's had an amazing fall. And I will say it just fell below the 200-day. I think that what you have is you have a mixture of these lows of Lennar have really good fundamentals, but price action and fundamentals don't come together all the time. And so you have that disconnect right now. I do think you also have algorithmic traders. We do follow the CTAs. They can they are not emotional. They don't care about fundamentals. Mm-hmm. They can sell very quickly. I will say Nike, I don't own it. 
I don't own it, but I, I watch it. It's a great company. It's had such a it's such a big fall. I have a rule. There's an old adage: never buy a stock making 52-week lows and never short a stock making 52-week highs. It's bounced off that 90, but it's something to watch as an investor. I don't think it's a Disney. They don't have structural issues. Jim Labenthal bought it when we talked about it yesterday. Yeah. Nike. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting name that has durability. The direct to consumer. I would much rather own Nike over like a Foot Locker or one of the the box retailers as Nike is just usurping them and they do have good global exposure, but I'm underweight. I mean, I don't own any of them right now. How about Kohl's? You want to take that one? I'll do Kohl's and VF Corp because it's really funny. Bryn is a growth investor. I am a value dividend investor. So one man's trash is another's treasure. So when Bryn says she doesn't want to own things that make repeated 52-week lows, to me, I start to perk up. So when you're not owning Nike, I am owning VF Corp, which is down which is down almost 90% from its high, has a 7.2% yield. I am owning Kohl's. And Kohl's is a really interesting story in particular because both of these have unique elements to them. They're not just, oh, let's look at all of consumer retail. The unique element on Kohl's is that they have this really excellent management team coming in. They have Tom Kingsbury, who's taken over as CEO. He did an enormous, unbelievable turnaround at Burlington where he where he drove the share price up almost 700%, while the S&P was up about 50 or 60% in the same time frame. So you've got Kohl's right now with a 10% yield, trading dirt cheap, actually executing. You've got VF Corp, right, where we see Nike's numbers. And you, and by the way, VF owns Vans. That's a huge part of their business and Timberland. So these are kind of thrown out. So uh, yeah, I like those repeated 52-week lows. I think, I think that you need, I think with those companies, I mean, obviously you're getting a They're really unique. great dividend and so you can be patient. But I think that for those names like a Kohl's, I'm looking at, you know, the chart, you need a catalyst, right? You need a, a continued catalyst. And maybe that's just earning durability quarter after quarter. And I just think that you're getting that yield and that's your strategy. Right. But I wouldn't be patient enough to wait for right. that catalyst. And if you're paying occur. me 10%, I'm totally patient. Yep. And you're exactly right. The catalyst is going to be three, four, five quarters of actually delivering on what they said they were yeah. going to. Down 25% in a month. So some might be losing their patience. Um, Guggenheim today comments on Kohl's. They call it a key value stock in the next year. So we shall see. Up next, Mike Santoli. He's here with his midday word right after this. on the half our senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joining us right now for his midday word. All right, Mike, so you get the start getting the downgrades of the apples yeah. and et cetera, <laughs> and here we are. Yeah. Just your thoughts. No, a lot of the psychology has played out uh, in somewhat textbook fashion. You know, a little bit of another shake and bake uh, this morning. You know, you did have a lot of pileup of new 52-week lows at the open. It was really poor market breath, uh, but it's probably slightly encouraging baby steps that the Treasury market responds at least somewhat to some of the slightly cooler economic numbers. So it's not as if there's this just runaway freight train, higher yields. It's not responding to anything except for the kind of self-reinforcing psychology of too much supply. So maybe you've broken that circuit for now. Um, And, you know, that being the case, as we've talked about for days, you do have the makings of that dry powder with all the oversold conditions. We'll see where it gets us uh, at this point. Mm-hmm. We, again, stopped just short of the 200-day. So maybe not sort of a perfect flush that would have panicked everybody out, 
but uh, responding at least today. Relief also, you, you'd think, from oil, correct? Yes, I'm looking sure. now, now 4.5%. We're, we're worried about 95. You know, here we are today on WTI at 85. Absolutely, and that, in theory, should also act as more of an anchor on the long-term yields if it persists uh, for some time right now. You know, we're in a delicate spot because we want to see somewhat softer economic numbers uh, and maybe, you know, softer demand for things like uh, oil, but you don't want to see it really fall apart entirely because we're we're sort of concerned about this, you know, kind of accelerating economy that then kind of hits uh, hits hard uh, when it, in response to yield. So uh, at some point, depending on the day, we might wish for something else. But today, that's welcome. Yeah, exactly. I'll see you soon. That's Mike Santoli. Of course, hear from him again on Closing Bell in just a couple of hours. Coming up, the UAW strike rolling into its third week. No end in sight. The shares are down 7% since it began. Up next, GM CFO. He joins us exclusively to talk about the fallout, what's next for the stock as well. Phil LeBeau on the case next. We're back. UAW strike now in its third week. Our Phil LeBeau with us now with a CNBC exclusive interview. Phil. Thank you, Scott. Let's bring in Paul Jacobson, CFO of General Motors. Uh, Paul, thanks for joining us today. Uh, you guys have just announced a new $6 billion line of credit, essentially to give you guys a little more flexibility, financial flexibility, uh, as the strike grinds on. Is this a sign you expect this strike to continue for several weeks more? Well, good afternoon, Phil. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. You know, I I think I wish I wish I was here to talk uh, about a settlement that we we were done. You know, we certainly put um, really strong offers on the table. We've had over five offers. We put a record offer on the table um, before the strike happened, and uh, we continue to believe that we can we can find an agreement. Uh, the facility that we announced today is a six billion dollar line of credit that I think is just prudent uh, in light of you know some of the messages that we've seen from some of the UAW leadership that they intend to drag this on for months and you know we've got to continue to fund the transformation uh, and really position GM for the future for all of our people you know your most recent offer you guys made one on September 21st you didn't hear anything back from the UAW in terms of a formal counter offer until this past Monday uh, I'm sure you're going over that and there will be a counter offer to their counter offer um, shouldn't there be a little more urgency Paul I mean, I, I think as people watch these negotiations, everyone's saying, wait a second, we're going days, a week, week and a half without counteroffers? Well, you know, I think it's been a very different um, uh, strategy, a very different negotiation for uh, all three of the major manufacturers. You know, we stand ready. We, we've said very uh, repeatedly we're available 24-7 to talk. Uh, we've put a record deal on the table. That's what the union asked for. And I think uh, there, there's, there's something in there that addresses many of the issues that are on there. Um, we've got to make sure that we do, do a deal that allows us to be um, uh, on par uh, with our competitors out there and make sure that we're able to compete uh, for all of our people in the future. Paul, so far you've laid off more than 2,100 workers. These are at facilities where they're either not operating or they're not needed because they produce products, parts that go to facilities where a strike is going on right now. Um, do you expect more layoffs in the, in the weeks to come? 
Well, you know, I think we, we, we can't necessarily predict where they're going to strike next. I think we've been very prudent about the way we're trying to run the business, which is if there's a plant that's impacted, like happened with Wentzville and Fairfax, uh, we've got to make sure that, uh, that we're running the business and pursuing austerity where we can if we can't produce. Uh, and uh, the strike actions put us in a position where we have to lay people off. We have to react. It's unfortunate, and I think it's a side effect of the, of the strategy that they've taken, uh, but one that, you know, we're, we're managing through best we can. And, you know, let me just take a minute to thank all of those folks that are continuing to work the line. The, the vehicles that are coming off the line are um, uh, of great quality. Uh, they're in great demand. And uh, the people are doing a great job that are coming to work every day. Hey, Paul, the UAW has made it clear that they want UAW workers uh, at these EV battery plants that are in the planning process for you and your competitors. Can you be competitive with Tesla? with others in the EV market here in the U.S. if the people who are going to be at these EV battery plants are paid UAW wages? Well, Phil, we continue to believe that, you know, uh, a joint venture strategy is the right one um, for us. Uh, as, as we've said before, our partnership with LGES um, uh, is, is going strong. We have the only unionized battery plant uh, in America, and it's producing cells very, very well right now. They're in negotiations. That's not in the scope of this agreement because it is a JV plant. So uh, that's not up to us. That's up to the management team at Altium. Uh, to be able to resolve that. So we've got to maintain um, um, price competition, price discipline where we can. Uh, and uh, we're going to do our best to, uh, to make sure that we do that while our people are winning. Paul, is there a limit to how far you can go? Well, you know, like I said, Phil, we're not going to negotiate publicly, but, you know, we, we put a really compelling offer forward um, in, a, in the hopes to avoid a strike. So, you know, while, uh, while there are discussions that are taking place, there's a lot of, you know, moving things around. We're trying to be responsive um, to, uh, to questions that are being asked and uh, to issues that are important. Um, but we put an offer on the table that uh, we felt like we could get it done, and it's a record offer. It's uh, comparable to everything else that's done or, or excess that's been done out in the uh, space and recent agreements, uh, and one that we re think reflects uh, accurately the contributions of our team going forward and position us, positions us to win for the long term. Just to put a finer point in this, is there a limit? Um, of course there's a limit. The limit is what we've got to do to be competitive uh, across the set. We know the competition. We know what the uh, industry is doing uh, in terms of EV pricing, uh, EV demand, lots of questions around there. We need to be careful about uh, what we do. And my job is to make sure that, that we sign a deal that allows us to compete and thrive in the, in the EV transformation. And, uh, and that's what we're aiming to do. Paul Jacobson. Paul, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, joining us exclusively, Scott, I'll send it back to you on a day where General Motors announced a new $6 billion line of credit as they continue to look for financial flexibility as this strike goes on. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Phil LeBeau. Final trades just after this break. Closing bell, 3 o'clock Eastern. We've got Liz Young, Greg Branch, Dan Greenhouse, Roger Altman. So we're going to kick it all around over that last hour of trade, see what rates do, see what stocks do, see what Apple does on the downgrade, and I hope you'll join me then. All right, final trades. Jenny Harrington. Okay, one up. Just closed their merger with Magellan. Got a great set of assets, six and a quarter yield. Thank you. Jason Snipe. I like Walmart here. They're increasing third-party seller activity in preparation for the holidays. Look at it. Joseph Terranova. Costco, the economies of scale and strong momentum. Okay. Bryn Talkington. 
Diamondback, WTI is about to hit its 50-day moving average at 83. Diamondback has an 11% free cash flow yield. Buy Diamondback, sell the March 160 calls. Five months out, you get 5% um, income, 15% total return if it gets called away. All right, good stuff. Good having you back on the desk as well. Bryn, thank you very much. On a day where oil is selling off sharply, as that's final trade. All right, I'll see you on Closing Bell Exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.